We will be picking back up in our study of the book of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 26. And Genesis chapter 26 is described as this transitional passage. It is a transition from the story of Abraham to the story of Jacob. And really, if you look at the life of Isaac, Isaac really gets... Uh, very little attention in the story of the patriarchs in Genesis. If you think about all the stories you know of Isaac, most of the time the stories you know of Isaac are connected in one way to another character. And so, like, for example, one of the, probably the main thing, if I were to just ask you uh, before the service, what's the first story that pops into your head about Isaac? You might say, well... The sacrifice of uh, the near sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, or you might say, well, his his uh, blindness and his uh, deception that happened to him by Jacob when Jacob stole uh, Esau's birthright. And so everything that you think of with Isaac typically revolves around some other character. Isaac's just a supporting actor, you might say, in the story of some other Character in the Bible, except for in Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 is the only chapter in the Bible that is solely dedicated to the life of Isaac. And in that chapter, we don't have a lot of description. I mean, it it tells us some kind of seemingly mundane things about Isaac's life, but it is a it, what the author of Genesis is trying to do is to show us that the line of secession from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob was not just a, a piece of paper that was passed along or a, a certification by one man to the next, but rather this was God's ordained purpose that Isaac was the chosen line from Abraham. And Jacob was the chosen line from Isaac. And so the author wants us to see that Isaac is blessed just like Abraham was blessed. And so the chapter is meant to show us that uh, Isaac is this chosen seed of Abraham. And the, what I want to focus on today is the fact that Isaac, really all Isaac does in the story is he just waits. And so I want us to look at what we do while we wait. And so what I'd like for us to do is to read Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 22. And then, I'm sorry, yeah, verses 1 through 22. And then I'll pray and we'll get into the sermon in earnest. So Genesis chapter 26, starting in verse 1, God's word says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring 
as the stars of the heaven, and I will and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me and me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this, that, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you are indeed the God who promises and the God who keeps his promises. And Father, we rest in your promise that one day you will return your son will return in all his glory and will call us to be with him. And he will cause the resurrection of the dead to which we hope. And because of that, we know that we can wait watching for that day, expecting the redemption of the world and expecting all wrongs to be righted and all uh, all to be brought to account and for the grace of God to be revealed on his saints. And so, Father, we trust in your promises that have been proven through your son, and we wait for that day. And as we wait, Lord, I pray that you would use our word to correct us, your word to correct us and reprove us. 
And Lord, that you would use me, your servant, to proclaim to this people the truth of your word. Father, that I might encourage and build up and that the words that I speak might not distract or lead astray. And that everything that is done might be to your glory and your honor. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, as we were talking about before the service began, the world's attention has been captivated, 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 captivated by the issue of racism lately. A steady drumbeat of protests and violence and legislation has kept the nation fixated on the issue of what some call systematic or systemic racism within the institutions of our nation. In an effort to once and for all abolish racism from our national psyche, statues have been torn down, police reform efforts have run through Congress, and a special attention has been given to every use of force by police. In this struggle, some have expressed hope that this might be the beginning of the end for racism. I watched one interview the other day on uh, the Today Show in which an older African-American woman who had been through the civil rights struggles of the 60s, she expressed hope by saying, racism may not be eliminated in my lifetime, but I believe that it can be, limit, uh, be eliminated in the lifetime of my children. Now, I certainly understand her hope, but the truth is Racism cannot be abolished or revolutionized uh, or changed by revolutionizing our government, abolishing the police, tearing down statues, or shaming racists into obedience. Sure, these actions may have some normalizing effect on society and make people behave better in public, but changing the names and restructuring cannot change the heart of man. Racism, like any other sin, is due to the sinful heart of mankind. Yet the, this idea that we can somehow abolish one sin or another by changing the external symbols and the laws of our land betrays a belief that we have about this world. This world, we think, just needs a little reforming. It just needs a little restructuring just needs a little revolution. Every philosopher from Plato to Hegel has believed that the right philosophy can change men's mind to where they will act and make a better society. Every political theorist from John Locke to Karl Marx has believed that the ideal government can bring about a utopian culture. Even as we thirst for justice and peace and mercy, one generation's righteous revolution is the next generation's systemic failure. Because of our sinful hearts, we cannot know perfect justice. So in order to fix, in order to fix police brutality, we respond by calling for the defunding of police. In order to bring about law and order, we attack peaceful protesters and exacerbate the situation rather than healing it. All the while, instead of being driven to our knees to beg God for, to save us, we try to come up with one more solution to the problem. Now, the Old Testament patriarchs were no better at this than we are. 
On at least three different occasions, Abraham nearly gave away the promise of God because he wanted to deal with the immediate issue that he faced. He almost gave away his wife to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He almost gave away his wife. Uh, he almost uh, totally destroyed his relationship with his wife through his sleeping with Hagar. And he almost gave away his wife again to the king of the Philistines, uh, Abimelech. Three different times, he almost ruined the purposes of God by his attempt to deal with the immediate crisis he was in. Now, in Genesis chapter 26, we have the next generation of the promised line of Abraham in the story of Isaac. The author uses this chapter to show us that God is still faithful to his promise by extending the blessing of Abraham to the next in line to Isaac himself. And he also shows us what it looks like to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Isaac serves as both a good example and a bad example of what it looks like to wait on the promises of God. Now the chapter begins with this renewal and extension of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God catches Isaac on his way through the Philistine land to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And just like his dad had done before him, Isaac decides to go down to the fruitful land of Egypt to escape this famine. And God catches him on the way there and he tells him not to go down to Egypt, but instead he says, sojourn or dwell in this land that I will give you. And when he tells him to sojourn, effectively what he's telling him to do is wait. Stay in the land, trust what I am doing, and wait. Now remember, Abraham had failed miserably at this very thing of waiting on God to fulfill his promise, even from the very beginning when God first made the promise to him in chapter 12. So now God calls on Isaac to be faithful by waiting. Now, initially, Isaac doesn't do so well at waiting. He is already in the land of the Philistines because that's on the way down to Egypt. So he just stops there and he sets up camp and he decides to wait for a while. But just like his father before him, he does not trust the Philistines. And he has a good reason for that. The Philistines were known for being a lawless people. And they were also pagans who worshipped foreign gods to Isaac. And even though Abraham had made a covenant with the king of, Abimelech, the king of Philistines before him, there was no reason Isaac could assume that this new king would honor that pledge. So he devises the same exact plan that his father had devised. And he decides that he's going to lie to the people of the land by telling them that his beautiful wife, Rebecca, is his sister. And now for a little while, the ruse works. He, he pulls it over on them and everybody leaves him alone until one day the king, it says, looks out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebecca laughing together. Now your translation may say playing together or laughing together. This isn't... This is kind of uh, this word here for laughing is actually an innuendo. 
for something more intimate between Isaac and Rebekah. After all, if the king looked out and saw a brother and sister laughing together, what would that matter? But this is implied to be an intimate exchange that is happening between Isaac and Rebekah. And because of this intimate exchange, the king recognizes that they are husband and wife. And he challenges Isaac with his life. Now this deception causes a rift between the Philistines and the Hebrews that one could argue lasted all the way through to King David himself. Now in this deception, Isaac, like his father, showed a lack of faith in God's ability while he waited on the fulfillment of the promise. This is in spite of the fact that Isaac was the impossible child of promise, born of a barren woman. Yet when his life became difficult and when his life was put at risk, instead of trusting in the promise of God, instead of waiting on God to fulfill his promise, he trusted in his own ability to lie and effectively get away or get out of the situation. But Isaac is also a good example of waiting for the promise. We find in the rest of the passage that Isaac moved away from Gerar because of the conflicts with the Philistines over water rights. And everywhere Isaac goes, he, see, he seems to run into the conflict, into conflict with the Philistines. He digs a well in one location and the Philistines come and claim it. He digs in another location and they claim that one too. Finally, he discovers a well at a place that he calls Rehoboth where the Philistines do not bother him. And at this moment, Isaac praises God because God has, quote, made room for them in the land. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice about what Isaac does here. First of all, In spite of his past failings, Isaac does everything in his power to live peaceably with the Philistines. Could Isaac have drawn up battle lines and waged war against the Philistines? Sure. In fact, it says that one of the reasons the Philistines pushed him out of the land is because they were afraid of him. That he had gained so much power, so many servants, so much wealth... They were afraid that he might cause trouble in the land. And so sure, Isaac could have fought for the land that God had promised, but God had not told him to fight. God had told him to wait. He had, he had told him to wait and to sojourn. There would be a day when God would fulfill his promise by giving this land to the descendants of Isaac. But until then... Isaac was called to wait. Second, while Isaac waited, he dug wells. Now that may seem like a really mundane fact. You know, what does it matter in the grand scheme of history that Isaac dug wells? After all, he kind of needs a well to survive, especially in the land that he's in. But in Scripture, wells are a redemptive symbol. The Garden of Eden is portrayed as this well of life with rivers flowing out of it. Hagar and Ishmael, as we've seen before, were saved twice by by God revealing a well to them. 
Isaac's wife was found by a well. Moses was delivered from the desert by a well. The people of Israel would later be delivered by water from a rock. Wells mattered, yes, because they quenched thirst, but also because it allowed the people of God to persist in the land. If you moved to a dry, arid location and there was no water, you weren't going to stay there. But if you established a well, you could reside there indefinitely. So Isaac builds towards the future fulfillment of the promise of God by digging wells. Now sadly, the descendants of Isaac did not wait upon the Lord. They were commanded to wait for God to bring the nations to them, for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham by causing the nations to come to God through the Israelites. And instead, they made allegiances, they intermarried, and absorbed the cultures and religions around them. Now, all of that waiting that they were supposed to be doing was looking forward to one offspring of Abraham who was to come. Matthew starts his gospel by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Galatians 3, 14 says that in Christ, the blessings of Abraham have come to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus was the promised blessing to the world that Abraham and Isaac were waiting for. Yet, John says in John 1, 10 through 11, that he came to his own people and they did not even recognize him. No one was waiting when Jesus came. Instead of a royal welcome, the king of the day, King Herod, sent soldiers to find and to kill the little baby boy. Instead of an excited reception from the religious leaders, there were numerous plots to kill him. Yet, even with all of the faithless of the world bearing down on him, Jesus patiently waited. He waited for God's plan rather than giving in to the temptations of Satan. He gave no answer at, in his defense at his trial. He labored with the cross under, up, up the hill of crucifixion. And he waited in the tomb for his righteous resurrection on the third day. And in his resurrection, he defeated death and hell for those who believe in him. And yet, death and hell still seem to reign here today. Death still seems to reign in this world. Sin still seems to hold sway over men. If Jesus is the completion of the promise of Abraham, why are we still dealing with all of this? You see, just like Abraham and Isaac were given the promise and then commanded to wait, so too we have been given the promise of final resurrection. And in the meantime, we are told to wait. We are told to wait and to watch. So what do we do while we wait? Now, some Christians believe that we, are, we aren't really waiting, but rather we're bringing about the kingdom of God by our efforts in this world. 
You hear a lot of Christians today talk about how we are, quote, building the kingdom by reforming institutions and by changing the culture. Yet, interestingly, you will not find a single place in the New Testament where Christians are commanded to, quote, build the kingdom. Everywhere you see the idea of the kingdom coming, it's God bringing the kingdom through the ministry of His Holy Spirit and His Word. We aren't building the kingdom. God is. God is calling people from every tribe and every tongue every day into His kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of His Holy Spirit. There is no command in the New Testament to change the government structure or campaign for new laws or make the culture more Christian. What you do find are statements like this from Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. And there are plenty of other examples of this in the New Testament. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, our calling as believers is to faithfully wait. We do that by living holy lives before outsiders, by living peaceably with all men, by using our gifts and our talents to serve our fellow man, and by telling others of the love of Christ. In our faithful presence in this world, we show forth the glory of God as we patiently wait on Him. So does that mean, though, that we ignore injustice or need? No. We are called to do good by loving our neighbor. But we do good knowing that the ultimate solution is not our reforms, but the coming kingdom of Christ. Like Isaac, we dig wells for the future while we wait on the promise to be fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that ultimately your purposes are fulfilled through your Son, Jesus Christ. And while you have called us to work in your field and to uh, seek the harvest that is plentiful, while you have called us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, we know that it is ultimately you who build the kingdom. It is you who go before us. It is you who is with us even to the end of the age. So, Father, we trust that whatever our calling and our talents and our gifts are in this world, that you will use us and our meager offerings to further your kingdom. And that ultimately our hope is not in right government. Our hope is not in some new reform or some new revolution. Our hope is not in the law of the land, but our hope is ultimately in the return of Christ. And so we patiently wait, Lord, for that day. And while we wait, Lord, we commit to, uh, to being faithful in the land, to testifying to your love to outsiders, to showing the example of love that you have given us by loving others and by raising our children in the admonition of the Lord and being faithful to the 
the laws and the commands that you have given us. Father, may we, even in this time of tumult in our culture and in our country, may we be a rock of faithfulness, a witness to what it looks like to have hope and not despair, but rather to look forward to that promised day when you will make all things new through the work of your Son. Father, bless us now as we go from this place. May we be faithful in all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.